The field of physics has brought tremendous advances to modern Bayesian statistics, especially inspiring the current algorithms, enabling all of us to enjoy the Bayesian power on our own laptops. I did receive some physicians already on the show, like Michael Betancourt in episode 6, but in my legendary ungratefulness, I hadn't dedicated a whole episode to talk about physics yet. Well, that's now taken care of, thanks to JJ Rabi. Apart from having really good tastes, he's indeed a fan of this very podcast, JJ is currently a postdoctoral fellow for the Center for Matter of Atomic Pressures at the University of Rochester, and will soon be starting as a postdoctoral scholar at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, a US Department of Energy National Laboratory. JJ did his undergraduate work in astrophysics and planetary science at Villanova University, outside of Philadelphia, and completed his master's degree and PhD in physics at the University of Rochester in New York. JJ studies high-energy density physics and focuses on using Bayesian techniques to extract information from large-scale physics experiments with highly integrated measurements. In his free time, he enjoys playing sports, including baseball, basketball, and golf. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 47, recorded August 26, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.com. That's learnbayesstats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. guess what i discovered when coming back from holiday that the podcast had lots of new patrons who i want to sincerely thank here especially those in the full posterity or higher i'm talking about the fabulous matthew mcneer michael henkin and cameron smith thank you very much guys for your support that really makes a difference I also learned that LBS was nominated among the 20 best statistics podcasts of 2021 by Welp magazine. And since I know you love numbers, your favorite podcast is among the top 2.5% most popular shows out of 2.5 million podcasts globally. These podcast adventures keep surprising me. And this is all thanks to you. I'm sending you all my gratitude wherever you are listening. Okay, now let's dive into our episode with JJ Rabi. JJ Rabi, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, me too. And um, I think it is the first physics-oriented episode, which 
considering what the field of physics brought to the Bayesian stats world is long overdue. Yeah, I'm honored. Hopefully I don't uh, embarrass myself as the, the first physicist here. <laughs> well, I think, I think Michael Betancourt is actually the first physicist to have come on the show, so it's okay. It's just, it's the first episode where we're gonna really talk about physics. Oh, great. Yeah. So, Good. Uh, it's, it's perfect. You can embarrass yourself on that, that's okay. Like, we'll yeah. say that research evolve, evolves really quickly in that field, and like, today's truth is not tomorrow's, so, you know, something like that. Actually, let's, um, let's start with your background, because you did your PhD in physics, but did you start your graduate studies in physics? And if so, why? Yeah, I did my under, undergraduate degree actually in astrophysics, but it's, you know, essentially it's very heavy on the physics as well. And then I started graduate school in physics, so I've been uh, a very straightforward path the whole way. And actually, I don't have a great answer as to why, other than I always wanted to do physics, actually even from earlier stages of school. And I was never proven wrong. So I just stuck with it the whole way and I've enjoyed it. And it's been what I wanted to study and I've enjoyed it. And I just like it more and more as I keep going. So uh, kind of a boring story there. And I don't have any kind of, there was no grand realization for me about wanting to do physics. I think there's a lot of aspects of it that I like. First of all, it's being one of the more fundamental fields. So it's kind of at the, at the root of a lot of stuff. I like that aspect because it's it's kind of the logical conclusion if you just keep asking why for a lot of natural systems. And it's challenging and interesting. And there's a lot of interesting problems to, to tackle. And there's a lot of space for progress. And then, of course, uh, in general, physics has, has done a lot for us, at least especially in the last few centuries in developing technologies and stuff. So it feels like a place where you can make a pretty big impact, too. That's interesting because, like, for you, you've always been interested in physics, right? Like, you don't remember... So, but that means like, even as a child, you were interested in that or? Yeah, it's weird. I think, honestly, I think I started saying that I wanted to be a physicist when I was around 12 or 13. And hmm. surely it was not for any good reason because I didn't really understand what physics was at that time. But somehow I picked that up and it was always uh, interesting to me. I was always more scientifically and mathematically inclined. So it was natural that I'd probably end up in, in some kind of technology field, but Physics always intrigued me, and as I've learned what it actually was and started doing it, it just it just kept going. That's great that you had this natural tendency, even as a child, to be interested in physics. Because, like for instance, myself, I've never really been very interested in physics until now. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like often, I, well, not often, but when I think about it, I'm like, oh, actually, I I wish I had done more more physics in my, at least my graduate studies. The, the yeah, it's weird. I mean, obviously, as a child, I didn't really know what physics was. And then, and I grew up in a, a rural part of Pennsylvania in the U.S. So it's not like I was, it's not like one of my parents was a physicist or something. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a ton of exposure to, to stuff or even to, to most kind of graduate studies of any kind. <laughs> but it's also weird that even if you take physics in high school or something, it's not really physics, you know, it's very, you do kind of these mechanics problems from like the, the 16th century or something, right? Yeah. And it's like the really interesting part of physics you don't get to until, unless, most of the time, unless you're a physics major and until you're like maybe your your second or third year of undergraduate, at least, is when you start to actually do physics. Yeah. And then that's when it gets super interesting. Exactly. And everything else, frankly, is kind of boring, to be honest. Yeah. 
this is exactly my experience. It's that uh, like the physics I did in high school was really boring <laughs> and yeah. not very challenging. And like you didn't understand that basically the, the role of physics is to try and explain the world around us, <laughs> which right. is yeah. which is like um, among the coolest questions people can ask, in my opinion. But like you don't realize that in high school, or maybe also it's also a mix that you're not ready to realize that. I don't know. That's something I feel pretty strongly about. And I actually think, I think people, there's nothing stopping people from from doing actual physics earlier, or at least understanding what it is. And it's, I think it's just uh, probably much like in, in statistics, education, and physics, there's just a lot of canon and tradition of it's been done this way for hundreds of years, really. And then nobody's ever changed it. But I have, I have a lot of thoughts on how I would change a physics curriculum, both for people intending to study physics and for, say, other people that basically anybody that has to take a general physics course, you know, you can make it so much more interesting. And we're really doing a disservice to people of not getting them, like showing them how cool physics is from the beginning. Yeah. 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 I mean, you also make a, a disservice to, I think, science and scientific scientific thinking in general, you know, because if people are more interested in, in physics, they get more interested in the scientific methods. And, and this has a trickle down effect on a lot of aspects of just life and politics and just like, for instance, how do you manage a, quari- a, a pandemic, you know, and the role yeah. of vaccines and the role of quarantines and so on. But that's exactly what I was thinking about. Like, I was like, man, now that I see more physics work, thanks to exposure to people who are physicists, like, you know, through the podcast or through PyMC Labs, where I encounter clients or people work or colleagues working in that. And also the fact that patient statistics have been advanced a lot by physicists that came and uh, like created algorithms, implemented algorithms that help sampling our model right now. I'm like, but ah, that's a shame. I never got to see that interesting part of physics. Maybe if I had seen it before, I would have gone into into, into that, uh, that field. Yeah, there's a really interesting book by David Griffiths, who wrote a lot of, uh, a lot of the best undergraduate textbooks in physics, but he wrote one I believe it's called uh, Revolutions in Modern Physics, and it's it's a little paperback. It's it's fairly inexpensive, but it's written more for a lay audience. But from a but it's technically rigorous, so it has a um, it has as minimal math as necessary to get after concepts. But it it's an introduction to things like particle physics and quantum mechanics and relativity and everything, and it's really excellent. So it's definitely I suggest people picking that up if they're interested, kind of casually in physics. It's probably a good place to start Hmm. get some real content out of it though too yeah we'll definitely pick that up so revolutions in modern physics right and yeah definitely i also see parallels in that with um, the statistics education uh, basically because i had exactly the same experience with statistics i didn't actually like statistics (laughs) in uh, my undergraduate studies because this was really boring statistics only pen and paper and so like we were working on not very interesting questions. And then when you realize that you can use computers to do the heavy lifting for you, and they do that even better than a human brain, then you are free to ask much better questions, much in, much more interesting questions and work on more complex topics and, and answer, well, more complex questions. You're like, oh, well, if only statistics were taught that way, I would have loved that much a long time ago. 
you know, and so, so did you do your university studies in statistics or actually what was your, what's your background? Yeah, actually uh, not at all. I, I did a very French thing called a class préparatoire, which you can translate to preparatory classes. And so we have this weird system where we have the university, but on top of that, we have on top or parallel to that, we have what are called grand école, which like you can, that translates to big schools, but I think you could equivalent, like make an equivalent with the Ivy League in the, in the US, you know, so it's like very old and prestigious, not universities, but private institutions, mostly also some public ones. And so to, to get into that, you have to prepare for two or three years to then compete at the end of that with everybody who wants to enter these call these Ivy League schools, if you want. And then if you are, are among the top performers, then you get to enter one of these schools. And that's what I did, but for a, a business school. So yeah, I did a bit of, uh, no, not a bit. I actually did a lot of statistics and mathematics in my preparatory classes, but not at all with programming. It was like only pen and paper. So the math, the math uh, stuff was super interesting, a lot of linear algebra and so on. Uh, the statistics part, though, was uh, quite uh, frustrating, you know, like uh, computing integrals by end, uh, like, yeah, doing a, a lot of these kind of problems only, well, only by hand. So you could only think about uh, throwing a die and then having a problem around that. I mean, it was like actually quite an underuse of, of what you can do with statistics. When I discovered then much later uh, that you can use computers to generate numbers, I was blown away. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, not really a statistics curriculum, but it was part of what I did before. But now let's let's go back to you actually, because you you stole my role. Yeah. Well, we don't get we don't get enough of content from you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. In these, in these episodes. Yeah, actually, a lot of people have suggested me that. I should be the guest on my own podcast one day. You should be. I was going to suggest the same thing. <laughs> I mean, if, if enough people, enough smart people tell you that, I think you need to listen. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I have something in mind, uh, but Great. I want to come for, to like, to have something to talk about, you know, like you, all the guests I invite have, have amazing things to talk about. So now the bar is really high, you know, so I have to come up with something to talk about. <laughs> I'm, I have a feeling you've got plenty to talk <laughs> And so about you, so your subfield, as I said in the introduction, is high energy density physics. So basically, can you explain what this means in yeah. much simpler terms? And like, for example, what are the main questions that this field is interested in? Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, relatively new for a field of physics. Hmm. I'll start with what's accepted as the official definition of high energy density physics, which actually, I believe in 2005, there was a, a report from the National Academy of Sciences in the US here that kind of set a definition, which is what people use now. And it's the, the study of matter at pressures above one megabar, which is probably not helpful at all with regards to a definition, but there's a few reasons for why that is the definition. So we can start with the fact high energy density, if you think about energy densities, that's like energy over volume, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually the same units as pressure. Mm -hmm. So it's it's pretty intimately related to a field called high pressure physics, which is 
really about squishing things and things at high pressures. So high energy density physics has origins. It's kind of a, a combination of a few fields that came together. And I think the first place where it was really discussed was uh, born out of stellar astrophysics and the work from Arthur Eddington and uh, Chandra Sekar, who was a student. And it really, there's a question, you know, they, they would study the sun. You look up at the sun and you say, wow, that's really bright. There's clearly a lot of energy coming out of it, right? And you could also make approximations about kind of how big it is in this, this kind of work. And that was a lot of what their work was, which is, was very fundamental to a lot of astrophysics and physics in general. And, you know, Eddington on kind of a back, back of the envelope tried to write down what he thought the conditions were inside the sun, right? Which is, you know, a remarkably deep question that is very simply framed, right? So like, you know, simple as what is, what's the temperature? What's the density? And, you know, these are things that we deal with all the time here. You check the temperature every day. You know, we have, we know what the pressure here is one atmosphere generally. And it's, you know, the air has a particular density. And in the same way in the sun, there's a temperature and a density and a pressure. And when he did this, when he tried to figure out what the, the conditions were, he came out with some, some really crazy numbers. Things like uh, tens of thousands of Kelvin, which is you know, incredibly hot and very high densities. And then that's the first time anybody really thought, well, like, what does matter do at these kinds of crazy conditions, right? I mean, at, at things totally away from what we standard, standardly think about. And, you know, at, up until that time, most physics experiments happened, you know, in somebody's lab sitting in Earth. And they always happen at standard thermodynamic conditions. And then from there, once you start thinking about that and trying to figure out what would be going on if that were the case, then it opens a whole, a whole bunch of very interesting questions. And then, so that was in, in probably uh, around the, the 1920s, 1930s that happened. So then at the same time, you start getting revolutions in nuclear physics and particle physics, and we start understanding chemistry and bonding and stuff, right? And then you could start comparing energies and energy densities, really. So, so this gets to the definition of high energy density physics as being one megabar. It turns out that one megabar is roughly the energy density of chemical bonds, right? So if you take something like a, a water molecule and you take the energy stored in the, in the covalent bonds and divide it by the, the volume of a molecule, you get something around one megabar, which I believe is, uh, is 100 gigapascals in SI units of energy density, right? So the thought is if you were to take water and squish it to roughly one megabar, you would start to perturb the, uh, you know, you would affect the chemistry essentially. And, you know, as you affect chemistry, then you could get interesting new types of reactions, different behavior that involves all kinds of things, everything from quantum mechanics to other, you know, particle physics and, and bonding and chemistry. And this, it's, a, it's a conglomeration of a lot of different fields of science. So there's kind of two two root fields that led to high energy density physics. And they, they kind of both come from the opposite ends. So like I said, one of them is kind of stellar astrophysics slash plasma physics and stuff that's uh, at really extreme conditions. So just for context, the definition of uh, high energy density physics being one megabar, the core of the sun is approximately at something like a, a few hundred gigabar. So we're talking about many, many orders of magnitude higher, right? So, so those are, when you're thinking about the sun, you're thinking about things at really extreme, even for high energy density physics. And then on the other side, you could think about systems. So that's all kind of plasma physics. Everything is ionized. So you just kind of have a soup of protons and electrons, and there's not much chemical bonding or anything there because the, the energies are too high. And then on the other side, 
On the low end side, you have things like condensed matter physics, which uh, people are, are very familiar with generally from, from things like uh, semiconductor development and, and there's a lot of work in solar cells and you think about systems that are kind of crystalline. So you have a lot of very strong bonding and interactions that way. And then you could think uh, as you squish things, things become more condensed. So that's kind of the whole, the whole point, right? So you could squish things and eventually you could squish things to the point where they enter this AGD regime, the, the high energy density physics being AGD for shorthand. So there were a group of, of scientists studying kind of condensed matter physics and what happens when we start to squish things. And that really started with uh, Percy Bridgman, who was kind of a pioneer in that field of, of squishing things. And then you could think about the astrophysics side of things. And they kind of met, and interestingly where they met was uh, in the Manhattan Project, because the Manhattan Project, of course, there are scientists from all kinds of different backgrounds. So there was one of Percy Bridgman's students ended up being a, a key contributor to the Manhattan, Manhattan Project. From So he came from the condensed matter side. And then, you know, there are many astrophysicists and people that were interested in plasma physics. And they, they all came together. And it turns out during the Manhattan Project, there are a lot of implications for the war and everything, of course. But scientifically, a lot of very interesting work came out of that, including a lot of the developments for the Bayesian statistics techniques and whatnot. And here you finally, there were times now you could create these high energy density systems on Earth. So you're doing experiments where you have systems at these remarkable pressures where you, you need to think about what's going on with the bonds or what's going on with these different systems. And a very interesting story was before the Manhattan Project, in a lot of areas of physics, people thought about metals exclusively as incompressible, right? So if you have a piece of steel, you think, well, you can't squish that. That's solid. That's there. That's how it is, right? But then they were doing experiments where they had steel that was being compressed by a factor of two. So, you know, it squished like it was a marshmallow or something like that. And many people, uh, pretty much everybody, didn't know how to think about that and what's happening there. So a lot of work has gone into and studying that. And it's it turns out that it's it's super interesting uh, because it ties in a lot of different areas of physics. Yeah, I can guess that. And thanks for this uh, small historical summary of the of the field. I always love that, like history of science is always something that uh, I find super interesting. And that actually, I think it's also maybe a way to interest more people in science, you know, like. I totally agree. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's interesting to, to try to, you start to relate to the people that were studying it. Exactly. And you start to understand like, you know, they're just as surprised as you are. When you learn something, they were just as surprised then. And yeah, exactly. That slow burn of figuring yeah. one thing out after another. Yeah, uh, totally. That gives, you know, some substance to, to the formula that you learned in, your, in high school or else. And you understand that, like, science is not, like, only these formulas. Like, they have, these formulas have a life of their own. And to get there, a lot of people had to be wrong a lot of time. A lot of debates had to happen. And it's not just a linear process where you find a formula and then you move on. And also, yeah, the fact like I love that um, the fact that these people often like were as surprised as you are to learn something and that a lot of a lot of things we know in science are actually counterintuitive. And so the the, you know, the idea that um, because something is counterintuitive or at least the bias that our brain has to find something true, to think that something is true because it's intuitive, is actually a very strong bias that that the history of science like should uh, like reminds us to be very aware of 
you know, and very careful about. Yeah, I say this pretty often that the most dangerous idea is something that's plausible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, because you could, you often trick yourself into, it's plausible, it, it goes with your intuition, so then you're inclined to not look nearly as, as critically as you would if it was yeah. something you, that you uh, didn't believe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can get uh, stuck in, in, you know, local minima. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> because exactly. Of that. And so yeah, something to be very careful about. But uh, yeah, basically, I love, I love that uh, history of science. Always super interesting. And actually, I'm gonna have a guest to to talk about the the history of patient statistics very soon on the podcast. Uh, so I hope you you folks will enjoy that. I look forward to it for sure. <laughs> okay, so you told us about the the origin of high energy density physics, but right now, so. Like I'm guessing that the field, although it's still quite recent, that it advanced. And so what are the current main challenges in the in the field, you know, the frontiers of the research, if you will? Sure. One of the primary ones that most people will be at least vaguely familiar with is the study of uh, fusion energy. Actually. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two main pathways towards fusion energy currently being pursued in the world. There's a broadly speaking something called uh, magnetic confinement fusion. And this is something that France is, is heavily involved in with uh, the ITER project. And this is the one that most people learn about in their science classes if they've ever come across it. And this is the, uh, the idea of, of studying tokamaks and different kind of machines where the idea is you, you have uh, plasma that you, that you try to confine with magnetic fields and you just kind of let it uh, sit there and bake for long enough where you start to, to get uh, fusion reactions. And this is less in high energy density physics as a field simply because the densities are pretty low. So that's much more just kind of classical plasma physics as a characterization, but there's a lot of overlap. And I'm not very involved in that field, though we do overlap at conferences and stuff. So I see some of the research and that actually uh, Bayesian stats in, in that field as far as I could tell, is a bit more advanced than in, in some of the other fields of physics, actually. So kudos to them for that. The other type of fusion research is something called uh, inertial confinement fusion. So where magnetic confinement fusion is, you just try to hold the plasma together as long as possible and let reactions happen. Inertial confinement fusion is really you, you blast it as hard as you can. And inertia being kind of like mass, so it's, it's confined only in its own mass system. So you kind of start with an object that's usually like a shell and you, you get it to implode. So you get it to collapse down. And as it collapses down, there's, there's enough mass and inertia that it holds together for a very short period of time, something like nanoseconds. So that's 10 to the minus nine seconds type of periods. But in that time, the conditions get so extreme that you're able to get a, a big burst of fusion reactions and then you could get energy out of it. So very recently in the news, there was a, a release that uh, a laboratory in the United States, uh, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which uh, I'll, I'll be starting at actually very shortly, just successfully got out about 70 to 75 percent of the energy that they put into their, their system and fusion energy. So that's uh, remarkably close to break even, by far the most close, the closest to break even in a at scale reactor that's ever happened, which is incredibly exciting. And all of this, this is very much fundamental HED physics. So inertial confinement fusion is the biggest application and drives a lot of the funding and a lot of the interest in the field. It's obviously very exciting. And the way that these experiments happen is 
there's a few different types of uh, machines that are used, but the primary drivers are lasers, actually. So the National Ignition Facility is at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and it is the world's most energetic laser right now. There are a few others being built, and including in France, actually. France is uh, very much uh, a leader in, in fusion research in a lot of regards, and France is building uh, a laser currently being built as well that's going to be a very similar scale to the National Ignition Facility. But you start with this little pellet that's a it's a shell, and inside the shell is uh, deuterium and tritium, which are hydrogen isotopes, which uh, it turns out that uh, a deuterium-tritium nuclear reaction is the easiest one to make happen. <laughs> Although it's the easiest, it's still uh, very difficult, obviously. And the you blast this pellet uh, kind of uh, in a spherical symmetric type manner with giant lasers, and you get it to collapse, collapse down, and you get to conditions that are honestly very comparable to that of the core of the sun. So temperatures of uh, millions of Kelvin and densities of tens to hundreds of grams per cc. So we're talking about, you know, a hundred times more dense than water, liquid water. And it's, um, they're numbers that are hard to comprehend. Yeah. But, you know, when you sit down and think about it, you, you start to appreciate just how magnificently wild the conditions are and you get really exotic type of phenomena. And so a lot of people have the goal of trying to produce a, a nuclear fusion reactor. But there's also a lot of fundamental physics research to be had. And that's kind of what drives me the most is studying the fundamental physics of how does this material behave when you create these conditions and and stuff like that. That's always something I'm, you know, kind of uh, puzzled by in some subfields of physics. You know, like sometimes the scales are so large <laughs> that you can't comprehend them or then the scale gets so small that you can't comprehend it either. You know, yeah. it's like it goes from super large to super small, which is always something I find fascinating. And actually, do you personally like switch between these different scales, or like, do, are you do you always have to cope with big scales or small scales, or do you cope with everything in your work and data? Uh, very much everything. I think actually kind of kind of uniquely everything. So like I said, so I perform experiments and also do a lot of modeling and kind of more theoretical type of work. And on the experimental side, all of the experiments we perform are at scales of, so for example, some of my experiments that my thesis work were on, the, the target starts at one millimeter approximately, and then you know, the scales that we're talking about are something like tens of microns. So, you know, 10 to the minus six mil uh, meters. So incredibly small scales. And we're talking about picoseconds or nanoseconds, 10 to the minus 12 or 10 to the minus nine seconds, like these kinds of time scales. So incredibly small, incredibly short, very difficult, difficult to measure. And a lot of phenomenal work is, has gone into creating cameras and diagnostics that could even see what's going on. But then, like I said before, and this is where uh, a lot of my interest lies as well, is you think about sometimes, you know, oftentimes I end up thinking about stellar interiors, right? So we're at scales of, you know, the size of the sun, which is you know, remarkably different. So you have uh, astrophysical scales are relevant and kind of microscopic scales are relevant. And the thing that links them actually is are the uh, thermodynamic properties. Like I said before, right, you could get to similar conditions in both the different scales and there's kind of this principle in physics, right, is that in physics, the physical processes should work the same independent of scale, right? So there are certain processes that we should be able to study on Earth at these really tiny scales that are relevant for stars at very big scales, 
so that's a lot of the work is trying to trying to find what processes should scale appropriately mm-hmm. and how they should scale. And then if we could understand those, we could probably make statements about the larger systems or vice versa. If we have the larger systems, if we understand something there, we should be able to apply that to our terrestrial experiments at the smaller scales. That's going to be super interesting. We're going to talk about uh, like what you do exactly. But uh, yeah, first, maybe um, see a general question if you want. I'm wondering, like, is it's what you're doing your favorite subfield or not? Like putting you on the spot there, um, yeah. like, like uh, or or maybe like you love all kind of all the subfields in physics and and could switch to another one, or is it really the like the subfield you want to work on? Um, this is it is very much the subfield I want to work on. Hmm. Yeah. I'll start with I'm very interested in physics broadly, and I try to study and stay plugged into some different areas of physics. But mm-hmm. the uh, high density physics was the subfield. It caught my interest originally. Because it was, I saw an, an early, a pretty early paper on some some of the fusion results, and I read the paper. I didn't understand any of it, obviously, because nobody understands like the first few scientific papers they ever read. <laughs> But I saw the takeaway for me was they're using giant lasers to make little mini stars, basically, which is a very flashy headline, but is also not particularly incorrect. It's uh, it's one of those pop sci headlines that actually has quite a bit of truth to it. And to me, I was like, wow, that's incredible. That's something really cool. And it's easy to get excited about. So I wanted to pursue that. And then as I got more involved in it, it turns out it is it is just as cool on, you know, more deep levels as well. So I'm very interested in it. And it lets you touch a lot of different areas of physics. So I get to touch quantum mechanics quite a bit. I get to touch electricity and magnetism. I get to touch uh, some nuclear physics. I get to touch a lot of the, the different fields all come together at this point. So... It does lead to a pretty broad understanding of physics, I think. Hmm. Yeah, uh, that makes me think. Have you seen Big Bang Theory? This I week? have. That comes up a fair amount when you tell people that you study physics. Exactly. And so I'm curious, like how how accurate in percentage are the physics concepts that are? They talk about real physics concepts there. I haven't watched the show a ton. One of the parts I don't particularly relate. To a lot of the characters on the show, <laughs> so it is—it's a caricature, obviously, and yeah. obviously there are—you uh, know—it's not particularly wrong with a lot of the personalities, but it's—it's uh, it's a little bit overdone, perhaps. But they talk about legitimate concepts on there. Yeah, they do, which is very interesting. That's what I—I I liked in the in the show is that at least they they try to introduce uh, scientific concepts in a in a very popular show. Which is always something I lo- I love uh, when people do you know when people do that. Yeah, That's it's basically. funny there. The, something else they get right is the relationship between physicists and engineers. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, it's pretty oh, funny. The um, oh, that's super funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna go too deep down that road because uh, <laughs> you know, feelings get hurt. But there's uh, I'll just I'll leave it at this that the when we were talking about all of the the boring physics concepts that are in like your your high school or your grade school physics or, or introduction physics i classify that's really more of an introduction to engineering than it is an introduction to physics i see <laughs> oh, that's uh, that's great i i love that okay but that uh, i have now an excuse you know each time I, i'll watch big bang theory i'll say that it's for learning and not oh for sure yeah thank you for that yeah. excuse <laughs> and uh, actually let's get down to business i'm wondering how are patient statistics useful when studying higher energy densities yeah so this was uh i think they're incredibly useful and i'll even go to say that they're the only way 
to tackle a lot of the problems that we face. And it, it, there are uh, certain systems that we study that you cannot get an answer unless it's formulated in a particular fashion. And that formulation really is um, through you know, Bayesian statistics or something that you would interpret as pretty close to Bayesian statistics. Mm -hmm. As many guests do, I also very much want to preface this. I am not a statistician. I am mostly self-taught out of practicality. So inevitably, I'll probably get something wrong. But we could just consider this as a, a pragmatic view of, of Bayesian statistics from a, an experimental physicist type perspective. Mm. For me, it all started in maybe my third year of graduate school. And okay. essentially, I spent the first couple of years of graduate school studying a problem that's something that comes up for us a lot with highly integrated data. So the data that we look at in our field, and I think in a lot of physics in general, and this is uh, something that came up in one of your previous episodes with uh, Remy Loof, I believe, mm -hmm. was he did a very good job of describing kind of what physicists are interested in from a modeling perspective. And it's usually, it's pretty different than a lot of, for example, the exam, uh, a lot of the examples that are on the probabilistic programming language websites and documentation. I don't deal with big data in the traditional sense of many samples of a system. I deal with big data in the sense that we have, we do one experiment or maybe a handful of experiments mm -hmm. and we try to measure everything we can. And those measurements come in many different modalities. So we have images, we have static images, we have time resolved images, we have spectroscopic measurements, we have combinations of imaging spectroscopic measurements, we have time resolved spectroscopy. So you get all of these very different types of data. And the question is, you know, how do you combine these types of measurements into one coherent understanding of the system you're you're trying to to model and you know you're asking they're all very integrated right so essentially you have you have one system that's doing something right and that system has a, a few different mechanisms for releasing radiation of different kinds and that's usually what you measure whether it's particles or x-rays or something and all you get are these snapshots of what you know you get basically what it wants to tell you right it just has these processes but you're trying to figure out what's going on on the inside, right? So it's like if you take a picture of the sun with your camera and you say, what's going on in the middle of the sun? Well, you know, you don't get any information directly about that, but you get tons of indirect information. So I was working on a problem of one of, one of our types of experiments and I was trying to figure out, well, I have all these different types of measurements, but it's a really complicated, integrated, dynamic experiment. And I was trying to do some kind of traditional inverse type modeling things, you know, kind of take this quantity, get some kind of metric out of it, and then take some other quantity, get some metric and try to stitch them together somehow and come up with some kind of ensemble average argument. And these, these are techniques that are often very used in the field because it's kind of the way that you naturally think about doing analysis, right? Like we said earlier, and when you're sitting down in physics class and you're only doing problems that are solvable with a pencil and paper, Everything could be written down pretty simply, and usually it's reducible to some kind of algebra or a very simple integral that you could solve, and then you just a number pops out, and then there's the answer, right? So I was doing that, and I even got to the point where I had a draft of a paper written up, and, but there was just something unsettling to me. There's a few nagging questions just in the background that I was uncomfortable with, and as I started to pull at that thread, you know, everything fell apart. There was a house of cards, and I was like, you know this isn't particularly rigorous, nor is it uh, particularly coherent. So then I, you know, I was pretty much lost. And I was like, what do I do? And then 
I start thinking about it and, and trying to understand. Somehow I came across the idea of some Bayesian statistic concepts, right? And so I had some I had introduction to it in, in courses before, and maybe we could we could get into that in a little bit later, kind of what the, the background was, but none of it stuck to me. You know, I just like heard the words and sounded great, but I didn't know, I didn't understand any of it. And then I was at a conference and some people were talking about uh, PyMC3, actually, mm-hmm. very interestingly. I think I know that package, not sure. Yes, yeah, I think it, tell us it's, it's come up every yeah. now and then. It'll yeah. tell us more um, about it. So they showed it and it seemed cool. I still had no idea what was going on, but I was like, oh, that's pretty neat. And then at a similar time, there is a another scientist who I, I collaborate with fairly closely, had written papers. Uh, he's a big proponent of Bayesian statistics and he had written a paper five or six years previous that kind of talked about the use of Bayesian stats in, in high energy density physics and in inertial confinement fusion in particular. And it did not get much traction, but I went and read the paper and it was challenging to understand, but then I just sat down with it and I, and I struggled through it. And then I was like, wow, I think this is the answer, right? So I, at least I had a path forward. So then I spent a lot of time trying to build infrastructure, learn PyMC3, understand base stats a bit. And then suddenly things started happening. You know, I started getting some, some answers, some results. And the most satisfying aspect of it is I finally could just sit down and explicitly write out a model of what I thought was going on. And then, you know, kind of forward model through that and get quantities out and then directly compare those quantities to the measurements, regardless of what modality of measurement was, right? All these different modalities. And then iterate on that model. And it's incredibly powerful to do it that way. The biggest, the biggest problems that it solves are that you have to explicitly write your model. There's nothing to sweep under the rug, right? You, you state your assertions at the beginning. You propagate those all the way through. You get to compare directly to your data. And then you could go on that. And it either matches or it doesn't, right? Hmm. And, if, you, and it's, if it doesn't, that's fine. That's great, right? We learned something. So then you could update, you could make your model more complicated or change it or, you know, change your assumptions. And it's the transparency is beautiful. And it it's a way of in these very integrated, complicated systems, it really helps to keep everything organized and clear and straightforward. Hmm. But unfortunately, it's not very widely adopted in the field. People are still are still working through kind of a lot of the the older methodologies. And one of the big reasons are that some of the tools that are used in, in the field a lot are very complicated physics codes, right? So we have these these large at scale simulation tools that do not play kindly with outside software and especially do not play kindly with anything that requires iteration because they take a long time to run, essentially. Hmm. So a big challenge is gonna be how do we fold, you know, eventually marry these iterative Bayesian statistics type processes to these big integrated physics codes and let them work together. And uh, quite a bit of work is, is happening in that direction now. And people are doing a lot of work with using machine learning as surrogates for these codes and then able to, to run Bayesian processes in that. We've got quite a ways to go for pushing in that direction. Hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. So from what you're saying, what I understand is uh, you think that Bayesian statistics are uh, super valuable and very appropriate for the kind of, of work and questions that you folks are asking in, in your subfield. But that sometimes like those models are so big or sometimes the data are so big that you have 
uh, some scaling issues with uh, the Bayesian uh, framework. Is that did I understood correctly? Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. That's your most like that's your most common limitation when you can't use Bayesian statistics. It's because of that. Yeah, it's making it's essentially building a, a model that runs fast enough to actually be able to sample. Yeah, I see. And so for, for you, what would be a model that runs fast enough? So a lot of my models that I use personally are, I give preference to smaller scale models when I can. Yeah. And uh, for my thesis work, for example, it was a, I built a mechanical model of a system that basically solves uh, trajectory differential equations. So kind of solving a second order second order differential equation given some parameters and everything, right? And then you could kind of fit it to some trajectory data. So solving ordinary differential equations, coupled ones even, generally fast enough. Solving partial differential equations is usually where we get into trouble. And a lot of the bigger scale codes are uh, fluid equation codes. So anytime you're doing a hydrodynamic simulation, generally those take a little bit, especially as they get more complicated. Uh, those solvers take longer. Hmm. So it's like... What's the order of magnitude there? Is it all those days or? It depends. You know, it, it, there's there's all different levels of scale. So you could run a one-dimensional code that could take you know seconds, minutes, and that's fine. And and you could imagine very much being able to take a, a one-dimensional code and marrying it. Not too difficult to some of the probabilistic program languages. But then as you scale up to two dimensions and three dimensions, days, weeks, months, depending on the level of complexity that you you would like to. To study, you know, in the most advanced case, it'd be months to many months if you're doing three dimensions with the full state-of-the-art physics packages. Hmm. Yeah. So month is a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah especially <laughs> if you need to run, you know, two thousand samples of, you know, God. multiple different chains. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes your problems are just complicated and and hard, and so even a very optimized model will take a long time to sample. But several months is a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's too much, I, I'd say. I have definitely seen some some models around the in the duration of days or maybe a week. And these models were pretty optimized. Like it's just they were like they were pretty much everything you could do for now, like with the current technology, because these models had been optimized by very good statisticians and the model just takes two days to sample. Well, that's that's life for now. Yeah, I'll also say that when I say months, I mean months for a single run of the simulation. Yeah. So not even not even sampling a, a system. Wow. So in my case of my thesis work, it would take probably to sample, and they are far from optimized from a statistics perspective. And hmm. it's probably you know the way my working solution was inevitable was certainly very hacky. Yeah. I, I have no doubt about that, but. It would probably, the simple ordinary differential equation solver type of system probably took um, on the order of a few hours to sample fully. And that's using something that I'd love to advocate for, actually, as I have your ear as a, a PyMC3 dev, make heavy use of the sequential Monte Carlo samplers, actually. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because we, a lot of times our models are kind of black boxy type of models mm. of it's very challenging to write them in, say, either a Theano code or or in one of these uh, graphical type of representations. So oftentimes we kind of have our, our model over here that just spits out a, our likelihood function or whatever, and then we have to pair that into the Bayesian modeling uh, code to do the sampling. 
And I believe, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I will. The newest release of PyMC3 actually has a, seems to have a bug with the SMC sampling and the, the parallel sampling for it. And I actually opened that bug report uh, a while ago and people, people are working on it and I love it, but I'll just give an extra plug for, uh, that would be awesome to get, <laughs> to get uh, squished out for us and for our work. Yeah, yeah, I know it's something, the SMC sampler is, is definitely still experimental on PyMC, but that's uh, really, really great to see all the, all the efforts that's going in there. Like especially Osvaldo Martin and I think Junpen Lao also is um, is working on on that and, and that's great to see that and and to see the community the community like adopting that and even finding bug issues so well done yeah. thanks uh, yeah JJ. I mean it's phenomenal it's what I it's the sampler that I use for all of my thesis work and it's um, mm. because we have uh, we struggle with uh, potential multi-modality of our oh yeah of our, our likelihood surface and our, our, our posteriors and everything so it's it converges much better in that case and also the fact that it doesn't require the gradients is a necessary aspect because we don't have uh, we don't necessarily always have the gradients of our models so that limits our ability to use something like hmm. the nut sampler or whatever hmm, yeah thanks for uh, finding the issue next time well, I think you will do the pull request. I think that that's the next logical I, next know, step. I looked into it and I was like, I was tempted and I spent a couple of days looking at it. But again, as a physicist, I am a poor software developer. And <laughs> I I, yeah, it's, well, that, I got close to thinking about trying to do it, but then I was like, I, I'm not sure that I would be able to. Yeah. Well, first, I want to go on the record and, and thanks, thank uh, Osvaldo and Junpeng, if you're listening, uh, thank you very much for all the work you are doing on the SMC sampler. As you can hear, this is highly valuable. And so to get back to my train of thought, yeah, that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you because it sounds from what you're telling me that actually a big part of your work, and I'm guessing that a lot of physicists' work, consists in a lot of software development and like pure statistics and even some algebra and mathematics. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious how that all fits into what you're doing because it sounds like you have to you have to wear wear a lot of hats and that maybe the incentives are not very much aligned with that because the incentive in academia, like I think I think people don't care if you are a good software engineer and your code is well written and well structured and you are able to file a pull request on the PyMC repo to solve a bug that you see you saw in the SMC sampler, which I would argue is highly valuable for <laughs> hundreds and thousands of people, but I don't think it's important. In, so I'm wondering about how you juggle all that, you know, in these different hats that you have to wear, because it's important for you to be good at software development. But at the same time, I don't know if, it, that, if that counts for your, I don't know, tenure track or stuff like that, you know? Yeah, I mean, definitely hit the nail on the head there. It's, and especially in, in my area of work, I've, I did it to myself, but I think out of necessity, and it's the only way that I, I would be inclined to do it is I wear most of the hats. So sometimes people are part of bigger collaborations where there are certain people that have different skills that focus on different aspects of it. But but I kind of have taken the path of, of building a lot of my own stuff from kind of the ground up, which necessitates, as you said, all of the aspects of it, from the, the physics and the math to the, the traditional like mathematical type of computations, like you know, simple just NumPy, differential equation solvers, things like this, 
to having to learn the, the probabilistic programming languages and, and building the statistics understanding and, and sampling. And it's, yeah, it, it, the incentives are definitely misaligned. That's for sure. The incentives, and this is, I think, personally, I would say is a big problem. The incentives are to make a good story and write a flashy paper and put it out there and move on. Yeah. And there's the double whammy of, first of all, if you to do something what I would call is correct or, you know, more rigorously, takes a lot more effort, right? I mean, building these models and figuring out PyMC3 or, or some other tool takes a lot of effort and you have to learn a whole bunch of new stuff. And it's probably going to tell you that that flashy result is also not totally warranted, right? You know, your conclusions are inevitably always more nuanced and less flashy, but more rigorous and more important, I of course, would argue for, a, a, you know, long-term development of science. So the incentives are very skewed, but, you know, at some point you just have to say, I don't care. And I've been fortunate in my life to have uh, a lot of support from my, my advisors and people around me in that I've I've hit a real sweet spot of attacking problems that people have been struggling with for a while or that people really wouldn't approach because they didn't have the right tools to do it. So I found a nice little niche where I'm studying kind of unique problems from a unique perspective that's given me the reign to, to try to develop these things. And I've, I've had pretty good success thus far uh, communicating that and, and people have kind of acknowledged the perhaps the value. And, you know, it's a lot of it's very much, uh, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time just figuring out how to do basic Git stuff with repositories and, you know, version controlling for my codes. And, you know, I never had a class on that or anything, right? I never saw that in school. So it was a lot of just Googling stuff and trying to figure out how to use it and obviously messing it up and then fixing it. And, you know, now I kind of have a, a working knowledge of how to how to maintain a repository, at least in, in some way. And, and I try to help everybody else as much as I can. So we have a few other students that I've worked with that, you know, we collaborate together and we, we version control our codes and we work on a, a common code and it's been going well. And it's definitely made me a better software developer, though I'm sure if somebody looked at my code, they'd be appalled if they knew what they were, were actually looking at. But, you know, I'm trying. Yeah, that's great. Uh, kudos on, on that because version control is not the easiest thing and the funniest thing to learn. So yeah. that's well done for like continuing on that path, I definitely think it's a worthwhile path. And the good thing, at least in the open source community, at least in the Bayesian stats, is that like most of the people didn't didn't have a, a Bayesian stats course at the university. You know, it's not like you have Bayesian stats uh, master's degree. So a lot of people have to learn that on their own with the help of the of this great community. Same thing for good practices in uh, software development. So like to me, the, the best way to learn software development is to do open source. Like once yeah. you start doing that, since you have a lot of formats that are enforced on the GitHub repositories and you have the whole team helping you making your PR success, that's really how you learn. As you said, you know, trying stuff, making a lot of mistakes and in the end improving. Yeah, hundred percent. And I also, I would, I would like to, to double down on your thanks for everybody, the tools, the community of the Python community, the open source community is incredible. And I wouldn't be able to do the vast majority of the work that I've done, if not for all of the people working on the open source projects and developing it and answering questions. And it's phenomenal. And I think one of the most valuable things that people could learn as users of open source programming programs and libraries 
is to just how to submit a good bug report, which I'm always working on of just like, you know, you see a lot of things of, well, this didn't work or like something like that, right? Yeah. But just like giving versions of libraries and, you know, hardware used and a working example and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and then when you think about it, it's, it's already quite awesome. Like a lot of the research now is done on free open source software. Like whereas a few years ago, it was completely on, on private software. So uh, it's already quite amazing that uh, open source software was able to advance so much in these fields. And that's also probably a, a reflection on, on the value of, of open source software in, in, in that respect. And, and by the way, you're, you're using uh, Python all the time and, and PyMC for your Bayesian models. Is that your technical stack when you work on Bayesian models? Yeah. Pretty much exclusively Python. I did my, all of my work up to this point for the most part was in PyMC3, which was great. And I got it to work. So that's, I mean, something that works is the most valuable thing. I have recently started playing with uh, NumPyro a bit, uh, which I've gotten, which is very interesting to me. The, in particular, because I find Jax a bit easier to work with than Theano, what it's uh, now Azure, is that right? Asara, yeah. Asara, sorry, right. But we'll have the, in the V4, in the version four, we'll have this uh, Jax backend that oh, I think will, will be interesting. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the fact that Jax has NumPy like syntax and stuff in, in a lot yeah. of cases yeah. is very So helpful. yeah, yeah, we're working like on, on the, on version four, we're working on, on the Jax backend and also on a Numba backend. And oh, so, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I guess, so I, I've played with a bit with uh, both of those as, yeah, as optimized. I'm guessing that these will be interesting to you. Yeah, for sure. And most, I, if I'm not mistaken, you could correct me if I'm wrong, I think Jax or slash um, NumPyro does not have an SMC sampler hmm. yet as of right now. I'm not sure about that. I can't. Uh, I think it does not, uh, but I could be mistaken. I reserve the right to be wrong on that front. But that would be, uh, as I said before, the SMC sampler, I just, uh, I've grown quite fond of. So that's an aspect that will, at least for now, always time into PyMC3 because it's, I think it's quite good. Yeah. It's, it's worked yeah. quite effectively for me thus far. I see. Yeah, interesting. That echoes what uh, Rémi Louf said also, like that he's using PyMC3 views nine. 99% of the time it just works. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, totally relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it should be maybe the tag, the tagline, you know. PyMC3, it just <laughs> works. <laughs> that would be a great tagline. Yeah. It's, it may not be the fastest, it's probably not the slowest, and it definitely works. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, time is flying by and I want to talk a bit about your your thesis, although you already mentioned that a bit, but um, you said that uh, you focused on introducing patient stats into experimental analysis. And that sounds super interesting. Can you tell us what does that mean concretely? Yeah, I'll try to keep it at a level without getting too much in the weeds of yeah. technical details. But it was, as I said before, so my thesis overall kind of has, we'll say maybe three parts to it. One part is actually just doing the experiments, which I said happens on these kind of these laser facilities. And where I did my graduate work at the University of Rochester, and at the University of Rochester, there's a, a laboratory that's uh, called the Laboratory for Laser Energetics. And we have a kind of a, a smaller scale, but still pretty big scale laser, where I was fortunate enough to get access to and to be able to run uh, quite a few experiments throughout my graduate career on this laser. So, you know, I, there's experimental design, you kind of run simulations and you figure out what you want to do for your experiment. And then experiments on at these facilities are kind of happen in, in chunks. So like, a couple times a year, maybe you'll have one day where it's your day on the laser. 
mm-hmm. you go and you'll do maybe 10, 10 to 15 shots of the laser, as they're called. And there's a cooldown and period in between, and you have different targets. So you get, you know, and oftentimes there's there's time spent on setup and everything. So you'll get, you'll get out of that probably five or so kind of really, really solid data shots, which is remarkable to think that in one day you could go to this large scale facility and get out the data that you wanted. So a lot of effort goes into building up the experiments and then you have your experimental day, you do one experiment, you know, kind of one day, you get a bunch of data out, right? And then from there you have to reduce the data and analyze it. So the data comes out in, in kind of raw image formats, more or less, a lot of times, right? So you have to take these these images and reduce them into either a spectral measurement or or do some kind of image processing on them. So there's, uh, I do a lot of image processing and computer vision type things as well in my work, just out of necessity. So you do that and you distill it down. And this is actually a big part of the challenge in our field. And I'm sure in, in all kind of statistical type fields is what level of reduction to do to your data. You know, so where do you want to marry your, your data to your statistical model, right? And I've decided for a number of reasons that may or may not be justified that I like to reduce my data as little as possible. And I prefer to do my processing of the, the model output rather than the data. So when I say that, I mean, I'd rather for an imaging system, for example, if you have some kind of instrument response of the system, right? So some kind of blurring function, rather than trying to deconvolve the experimental data with that instrument response, I would rather convolve the output of my model with the response and try to get it to match in that way. So a lot of questions like this come up on the experimental side. And then there's the kind of the model building side. And when I say model, I mean physical model building side. So this is kind of the more theoretical physics side of things where you're trying to to come up with, you know, write literally write down on pieces of paper the equations that you think dictate the, the physical system that you're looking at. And then kind of the, the third aspect of the work that I did is the probabilistic programming, the Bayesian stats side of things, where you take that that theoretical model you get that to play nicely with the, the statistical model aspect of things and the samplers and whatnot. And then you get those in such a, a condition that you could compare them to the experimental output, right? So that the statistical model is kind of what bridges the gap between the, the theoretical and the experimental. So my time was pretty much, I would say, pretty evenly spit, split between those, uh, those three hats. And obviously the theoretical and statistical side of things is where all the I mean, even the experiment and, and all throughout that, the software development is sprinkled in, right? Because you need that to reduce your data and you need that for all aspects. And my thesis really was taking one of these implosions that I described and using, it was actually fairly, fairly simple. It's, it's really like, it was mostly a proof of concept first step of a, a Bayesian model for these systems to try to say, hey, this is possible and look at the cool things we could get out of it, mm-hmm. right? So we took trajectory data. That is literally like, so as I described before, is a shell, right? And the shell converges in and then diverges back out and all kind of crazy stuff happens in the middle. So just watching the shell go in and out, making a model for that, and then trying to say, to infer different things of what's going on inside the shell and conditions of the shell, for example. And in particular, uh, something that I measured was the, the pressure that that shell felt, right? So you can imagine a shell has some kind of mass as it moves in it builds up pressure on the inside of it, and then that's what makes it move back out. So a very interesting thing you could ask is, well, how, what is the pressure that's pushing it out, right? And you can imagine that uh, the way that it moves out depends on how much pressure is on the inside. And as direct as one could imagine in our field, that's kind of a direct measurement of pressure, which is generally pretty difficult, 
to do. So I, I built this model. I was able to infer the pressure pushing out on the shell that kind of has a, has a history, a time history of it. And I did it and I was able to get the full posteriors for it, which I think is really the big, the big contribution that it is. And it's to say, hey, we could do better than point estimates. Mm, yes, the full we posterior. Can. The posteriors are not normally distributed, right? Because it's very common practice in, in my field and in a lot of fields, right? Is to say you do a point estimate, you do some kind of local assessment of uncertainty, fit a Gaussian to that or something, right? You know, we have the tools now to move beyond that. And I think that is that's detrimental to our field, actually. And constructing the full posteriors is worth it because we have a very complicated system. They're almost never going to be normal, normally distributed. They're usually very weird, sometimes multimodal. There's correlations to investigate, right? And and buried in all of that, there's a lot of physics to be had, right? There's a lot of understanding. And, and it's interesting, you know, the stuff that once it all fell out, you could look at the parameters and you could say, hey, these are correlated, but hey, that makes sense that they're correlated, right? I could explain why they're correlated. And that's insightful as well. So that was the most exciting aspect to me is being able to get the full posteriors. So not just a number out, but, you know, a distribution out and say, you know, this is kind of where we could we could aim our uncertainty based on this model that I constructed. And then I did a little bit of, of additional modeling work without experiments to with a more complicated model to push to try to push a little bit further and, and set the the trajectory for future work that I was going to do as well. Yeah, that, that sounds both um, super complex and super interesting, yeah. <laughs> which I guess is often correlated. And it's funny because like when I hear you talking about all that, I, I hear a lot of similarities with uh, how we think afterwards about the posteriors, like when we have problems in our models and, you know, try to understand the, the shape of the posterior, uh, the shell, like, you know, like uh, you were talking about the shell, like it, it reminded me of the typical set, for instance. Uh, you can really see uh, the influence on, on uh, physics on the, the algorithms, especially the, the latest ones, uh, HMC, Monte Carlo and its variants. And, and um, yeah, see the, the relations with just a physics process, basically. So that's, yeah. I love that. It's interesting. And as a, as a note, just to, to touch on the origin, so I don't, I don't want to butcher this, so I'll, I'll try to stay vague with it. But the origins of, say, Monte Carlo techniques and stuff actually very much exist within high energy density physics. Like that is the field of physics that developed these things. And mm -hmm. the names that are, of course, we know that it came out of the Manhattan Project. And the purposes that there was, were built for were building equation of state models, which is the equation of state is, is kind of what I was getting after is the relationship between pressure and temperature and density or these different these state variables of, of a system. That was the original use of these Monte, Monte Carlo samplers was to, to build these kinds of physics models and whatnot. So it's interesting how intimately tied my field was with these kinds of ideas and we've kind of drifted away. You know, we certainly no longer are the, at the forefront of, of that research. That's obviously been taken up by the statisticians and everything. But I hope that it comes back in, comes back around and we get uh, we're able to, to rejoin here a little bit later in the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would be a pleasure. Uh, we have to to wrap up. Unfortunately, I had I still had a lot of question of questions for you. That's always frustrating, but uh, otherwise the the show is gonna last two hours. But uh, before closing up, what are your projects for the coming month? What are you especially excited about? Yeah, the project that I'm really excited about, which I'm going to be focusing on over the next few years, actually is taking astronomical data 
in particular stellar structure models. So, so trying to model the sun, for example, or a star and directly linking that to our laser driven experiments that I did my thesis work on. So, you know, you could imagine trying to build a single model that links those two through things like equation of state, through the, the, the underlying physics, and then applying both our experimental data and astrophysical observations at the same time in one cohesive analysis process to, to get constraints, you know, better constraints on both. And I think it's really, I, I think of it in terms of information, right? And there's, there's information content of both, and there's probably some degeneracy there, but there's also probably some aspects that are not degenerate. So it's just accessing every piece of information we can from every source and, and trying to have one physical picture of what's going on. Sounds like a nice program you've got there. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think it's, uh, it's time to, to call it a show. JJ, you'll come back so that I can ask you the questions I, I still had in mind. But for now, I have to ask you the, the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So first one, I think you know it. If you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, so this one, it's kind of, I'm kind of trying to solve it because that's, you know, it's, it's related to what I'm working on. It's kind of the, the future dream goal. But I'm really interested in the question of emergence and emergent phenomena. So in, in physics, there's a, and it's, you know, it's perhaps a bit of a philosophical question, but it's also, you know, grounded in a lot of really physical and scientific aspects. And, and in physics, there's kind of this feeling, the dominant feeling is that there's a reductionist view in that like everything is just particles, right? And if you had unlimited computational power, you could simulate the wave function of every electron and every proton. And then you could say, you know, perfectly predict everything that would happen in every system. I tend to not believe that that's the case. And there's a question of emergent phenomena, that is right, phenomena that are at a bigger scale than the fundamental building blocks that are themselves fundamental, whether that exists, whether or not. And, you know, there's a couple easy examples that come up that are not, not easily explainable in physics, such as uh, the arrow of time is one that's very interesting, because in, if we think about our fundamental physics and the forces that we know, they're all time reversible. That is, there's, there's no concept of forwards or backwards in time, but we could argue and, and very clearly make sense that we are, there is an arrow of time. We're moving in one direction in time. And that's not super easily explainable by physics. And it's, that's closely related to the, the concept of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics where that entropy is increasing. And, and there's some thoughts that, that that's what gives rise to the arrow of time. But that would be an emergent quantity, right? That's not something that's reducible to the most fundamental constituents. And that kind of ties into to my work through thermodynamics in that these, these state variables are kind of emergent quantities that we talk about. For example, something like temperature is often described as a concept of, uh, you know, it, it's kind of the width of some statistical distribution of particles with different energies, right? So temperature is, is, is likely is reducible to, to its constituent uh, parts, but a concept like entropy may not be. You know, there are statistical mechanics, views of what entropy is, and it's kind of closely tied to the information theory of entropy and, and kind of the statistical concept of entropy. But it's not, despite them being named the same thing, it's not entirely obvious how you derive thermodynamic entropy from statistical entropy. There's a crossover there that isn't totally understood or bridged. And, and these are the kind of questions that I find very interesting. Well, I'm not surprised that your answer is a 
physics one yeah. from what you said before. Yeah. And so second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? This is very tough. Yeah. I have a number, so I'm going to get out of the way originally. But this is uh, many guests say these two, so I didn't want to to be boring in that regard. But uh, Feynman, <laughs> of course, is always an excellent choice uh, as a physicist. And uh, Jane's, I find yeah. incredibly interesting. And I just wanted to to share a quote from his uh, his book, the, the Probability Theory book, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. But in, in the preface, there's a quote that talks about Bayesian stats or, or processes of these kind of being picked up. And he, he made a statement that it's important to develop a healthy disrespect for tradition and authority, which have retarded progress throughout the 20th century, which I think is uh, how I try to live, right? I try not to get bogged down by what's come before, but I try to have a a healthy disrespect of it so that we we can move forward. So he's probably very interesting to talk to. But what I'm going to lock in as my my actual answer is I, is somebody I think is underappreciated is uh, Robert Oppenheimer, actually, of course, uh, from the Manhattan Project. And he's known for that, but he was a, a tremendous physicist in his own right, uh, independent of the Manhattan Project before and after. And he was also very well known for being an interesting dinner party guest. So I think he was just, uh, he was pretty interested in philosophy. He's very... Very interesting fellow, and I think talking to him would be great. And I'll give uh, an extra shout out of, it'd be fun. I'm going to name a former guest of yours as well, because I think it's fun just to, you know, to, to dream chat with a former guest. And I found, uh, I found Remy Luf uh, very interesting. And it's probably because he had some background in physics yeah. and also in philosophy, of which, you know, I'm interested in both. And he just seems like he'd be fun to talk to. So that'd be uh, a modern one, uh, a think base. Uh, special edition. Yeah. Well, that's definitely doable this one. So yeah, that anytime you come to you come to Paris, you tell us and we'll arrange this uh, this dinner. I'll be there then because like like we'll go to a nice restaurant in Paris, so I'll of course be there. But yeah, yeah that's definitely doable. Yeah. Did you hear Remy? Yeah, like we we have to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, um so thanks a lot, JJ. Uh, it was like Super interesting. Like, uh, it confirmed my prior that physics is definitely a fascinating field. Just being able to study the nature of the world that's around us is just fascinating. Like, we talked about big scales, small scales, Bayesian statistics that wouldn't scale, a lot of scales everywhere. We even talked about Big Bang Theory. So, I love that. I mean, Great conversation. I learned a lot. I hope we motivated some people to uh, give a try to, I don't know, physics, go into a PhD in physics, uh, give a try to PyMC, file a pull request to PyMC or any other open source package. So I think it was a very diverse show. As usual, I put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, JJ, for taking the time and being on this show. Thanks very much for having me. A super interesting conversation, and we'd love to hear more from you in the future as well. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. 
I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.